to the Hope on the Hard Road podcast, where you and your family can find community, find encouragement, and find hope for the road ahead. Speak encouraging words to one another. Build up hope so that you will all be together in this. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 Hey guys, welcome to today's podcast, an episode in our series on therapy. Cheryl Jordan and I have been friends since our boys were babies. She began her career as a physical therapist and after entering the world of counseling as a parent, decided to make her career change to a clinical mental health counselor. She has a lot of great insights as both a parent and a therapist, so let's get started. Hey, Cheryl, thanks for coming on today. Hey, Kristen and Eric, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So Cheryl, tell us a little bit about yourself and your family. Well, um, I've been married for 29 years to Rob and we have two children Um, can hardly call them children. They're nearly the young adults, 18 and 20 year old. Before having children, I really didn't have any counseling experience and we started pretty early on in their lives, probably age three, age five with some play therapy. And we continued with that counseling through their developmental years. And I had been a physical therapist by training and education and decided through all the experience that we had with our children to go ahead and get a master's degree in counseling to maybe try to help other kids and parents and families who were struggling the way that we were. So at this point I have completed my master's degree. I'm pre-licensed. So my official title is associate clinical mental health counselor. Uh, And I have, about 4,000 hours to earn and a couple of tests to, to pass before I get my licensure. Let's open up the conversation with the question, when should someone seek counseling for their child? The short answer is anytime that you or your child and by child, let's define that as anybody under 18 developmentally anytime they seem to be struggling with any kind of behaviors that indicate a change or a change in either behavior or communication, because in children, behavior is communication. That's how they communicate with us. So you're looking for changes. You're looking for changes in eating and sleeping behaviors in school, either willingness to go to school or their ability to do their schoolwork, maybe not wanting to interact and do activities that they would normally do. And especially red flags would be things being with friends or doing things that they really normally like to do that, that indicates a change, any intensifying or new behaviors. And you're really looking for patterns and kind of that cause and effects. You're looking for what, what's going on here, which we do anyways, right. As parents, you, you're looking for that increase in intensity or, or frequency of a tantrum or a behavior that just seems out of the norm for your child. 
And so you're asking questions. You're going to ask your kid questions. And if they're nonverbal, you're going to do a little detective work and find out from their caregivers, their teachers, what's changed, what's happening that could have led to this behavior. And before you go seeking counseling, you want to make sure that there's not a medical reason. Medications can cause those changes in behaviors. And also one of my kids had ear infections that created a change in behavior. And I would call the pediatrician and they would ask me like, well, is he pulling on his ear? No, he's like jumping off the bed and he's, he can't tie his shoes. Like he can't do the things that I need him to do. It's behavioral, but it had a medical reason first. And then as a general rule, children process events through play and behavior. So behavior is going to reflect emotion. I had a child, an eight-year-old client who the grandma was seeking counseling, grief counseling, because he wasn't singing anymore when he played. And so for her, that was the red flag was like, he's, he's not acting himself. And then as we went along in treatment, she reported, yeah, he's back to that singing and and talking to himself. So that's an indication. Yeah. I completely remember that with Abby. She does that to this day. If we have some sort of change in anxiety level, she will normally, if she's happy, she'll be clapping and snapping her fingers and walking around dancing and singing. And if she's got a lot of anxiety, we don't see any of that. Yep. There's, I I love what you're saying about looking at your child's typical behavior, your child's typical behavior, and then looking for that change. Yes. And you can even, at one point we had so many behaviors we were logging, we used kind of a checklist and we would rate the behaviors every day because it gave us an objective measure to, to report back to the doctor. So, I mean, that may be a little bit off of scope here, but if you're talking about any kind of medication, if you're seeking counseling and you're putting your child on a, on a medication, Um, you want to know what the, is this ramping up behaviors or calming them down? So behaviors have so many different reasons and at the core, there's so much, you can't just say my child needs counseling, but once you've done the detective work and figured out, no, this isn't medical. And yes, it's related to a cause and effect. I can kind of understand what the events were that precipitated this counseling can be a really helpful addition to the team. Uh, When is counseling beneficial for your parents and siblings? I'm going to say everybody needs it, but uh, you know, we don't, we don't typically seek that for ourselves, but really when you are parenting one or more children with special needs and challenges, it helps so much. So on the, for the parents, it may be the only place that you can say what you need to say and be really honest about how hard things are. We often put on our bravest faces for even our closest, our family and our friends cannot necessarily even see the difficulty. And so just being heard and being seen, I remember there was a moment and our kids were pretty old at this point, they were, they were probably in their late teens. And we sat with a counselor and she just said, wow, that's really hard. And I couldn't believe how helpful it was just to, for, 
a half an hour, 40 minutes, be able to just unload all the stuff and have somebody listen. I know it seems silly, but I think just having somebody in your corner, our, our children's doctors and professionals, they're in the corner of our child. They're not in our corner. They're not for the parent. And so for you to just have that one person who's your advocate, who's asking you, how are you taking care of yourself? What are you doing for yourself? What do you need? Sit there and cry. I'd cry too. You know, that having somebody in your corner, I guess I'll highlight too. We live in a really performance driven culture and there's a lot of loss and grief when we're watching our children develop on a different path. So, you know, going off to kindergarten, that's a milestone. Some of us are never going to realize in the same way or going to sleepaway camp or going to prom or even knowing that our children may not ever make it into full independence on their, on their own, there's grief in that. And so that's the other aspect of is this is grief and loss. And then finally, I'll just share from my own history, I guess, being called into the principal's office for my kids behavior. That was a trigger for me. Right. And so realizing that that brought up all kinds of stuff for me that I just needed to deal with in myself. This wasn't, it wasn't about my kids. It was about me being embarrassed, right. Or, or feeling ashamed. So working on myself helped me to see that's my issue, not my children's. They're, you know, they, they're just doing what they're doing and I can parent them better if I've kind of dealt with my own stuff. You know, also um, what about the siblings and counseling for them as well? Really? You're, it's very similar in a way to why parents need counseling. The demands of flexibility, needing to be flexible and the disappointments of, oh, sorry, we're not going there today. I know we said we were, now we're not, or we're not going the way that you thought we were. Those, those add up. And so a place, again, the same thing, a place where the siblings can go to just feel like they're heard. And I would even advocate some family sessions there, maybe the parents and the siblings without the special needs kids, just to be honest and talk about what, make a plan. How, how are we going to do this? And conveying to the siblings, we're, we're on your side. Most preteens and teens that are siblings are gonna need some support, some mental health support, even if it's just a little bit to kind of figure out who they are. That's part of that normal developmental process and figuring out I'm a sibling of, and I'm also a child of, and I'm my own person. And how, how do we navigate being valued and important and also being flexible in a family because that's what it demands. So I know one of the things that you and I have talked about is that anxiety and depression look different in children than in adults and even more different, you know, when you have special needs, can you explain this a little bit? Yes. So the functional definitions of anxiety and depression are really a change in their ability to function. So if it's anxiety or depression, it, you don't need the label necessarily. You're just looking for those changes and it may not look like what you're thinking. So we already talked about 
intensity, frequency, and duration. So for example, how long does a tantrum last or a behavior? How severe is it? And how often is it happening five times a day instead of it used to only happen once a day? So those intensity, frequency, and duration, that's what you're really looking for. You know, again, going back to Abby, when she has in the past had anxiety, um, her body literally seems to just shut down for her. And we're not sure even to this day, if that's, um, purposeful or if that's just the way that she's able to cope. And it's, it's something that, um, you know, physiologically just happens to her, but she will literally stop eating, wanting to eat. And this is a kiddo who loves to eat. Um, she'll stop talking. She'll stop voiding. Uh, she'll stop sleeping for days on end until we can bring back that regulation to her, to her body by, um, you know, continuing to regulate her schedule with familiar people, places, and schedule. And, um, so it does, it does look different and we've had to make staff aware of that staff at home, staff at schools, uh, and even her counselors. So supporting with some external structure until she can eat her own physiology Yep. and take back right. over and, and kind of crawl out. What you're describing is like almost she goes into a shell mm-hmm. and a protective shell, and then she emerges once things are safe again. Yes. So depression symptoms are really interesting and, and it could be anxiety too, depending on the age and the developmental level of the child, you're going to see different things. So with some red flags with preschool level or nonverbal kids, irritability and sadness and just that lack of wanting to brighten little, little children will brighten. Even if they're sad, they're going to be excited about the things that they normally excite about. And so that's a, that's definitely a red flag for younger children, um, elementary age up until preteens, a lot of times that it manifests more in the body what you're describing. So headaches, stomach aches, just feeling fatigued, sleeping too much, not sleeping enough. The the somatic symptoms, what we call somatic is just the body responding. And those are very, very common in children. And they, they often link to a mental health, not necessarily a diagnosis of depression, anxiety. That's how their body processes what they're dealing with when it's too much. And then for teens, that's where things get confusing because teens sleep more than normal anyways. But again, we're looking for changes in baseline and changes that are sustained. So if they're not getting up to eat, if they're not getting up to see their friends, that's a red flag, right? So it's not just the sleeping or just the eating. It's those noticeable patterns that are sustained over time. So females can have changes in weight and appetite. They can cry. They can express more guilt feelings and lowest low self-esteem. So whatever that looks like. And then for males, it's more of this sense of not having any interest or enjoyment in things that they would normally enjoy. And then change it, the social withdrawal and changes in mood and, and energy level and that irritability. So again, it's just the severe, severe extremes on this, not necessarily, they're all within the realm of being a teenager, 
but we're their parents and we're going to probably have a pulse on what's not normal. So looking into uh, counseling sessions, uh, what should counseling provide and, you know, what would the uh, sessions look like? Sure. So let me first just talk about how, how it works to get a counselor. My experience most of the time has been a phone conversation with the counselor first to kind of gather information outside of the ears of um, the children. And then the first session is usually with, a, with one or both parents and the child together. And then really for counseling to progress, it often is required that the child meet with the counselor individually without the parent. This was a big deal for me and it was really, really scary. So I wanted to say that first of all, all counselors are bound by a really strict code of ethics, which I didn't realize, but they are. So finding someone who's licensed and someone who has been recommended to you is gonna be a first step. And then often with my children, I went in either before or after the session So we had a little check-in with the child or with me by myself. The counselor kept a pulse on what what we were concerned about. And we either worked on communication with the child or sometimes it was just me saying, hey, he's getting in trouble at school and he's out of his desk. And whatever it was, I would kind of front load the counseling sessions to kind of guide them in the direction that I was hoping they would go. And then I guess I would say too, as a parent, you have goals for what their therapy is. So definitely lead with those in that first conversation or two, you're giving them the goals of these are the things that I'm really concerned about that I want to see improve. And then it has been my experience that counselors and therapists often tell parents not to ask directly what what did you talk about in counseling? What did you do? Because they're trying to develop a, a rapport in a safe place. Not that you're not safe, but this is maybe think about as, as I was talking about, we as parents need a place to just be honest and say what we really think about what's happening in our life. And our kids may need that too. And that may be, it's scary because you don't know what they're going to say about you as a parent. So um, some suggestions of what you might be able to ask your child is, you know, do you feel comfortable with this person that's your counselor and how did the session go? And they're going to say, you know, fine, or I hate it, or I wish I didn't have to go or whatever they're going to say, but you're going to get a, a sense of over time of whether that rapport is building with that counselor. And if it's not, then, you know, back to the drawing board, maybe find somebody new. Um, With a nonverbal child, that's where you may want to observe and depending on the child developmental level and whether there's an impact of you being present or not, that maybe you can use a, a, a window where you can see and they can't see you just to establish that your child is safe. If they're not able to communicate with you, you want that safety is really important. And then as far as what does counseling look like, a lot of times it looks like play. A lot of times, even with one of my kids as a teenager, well, I'll say both, 
they played games, they played board games. And that was a way to establish that rapport. And I was a little cynical about it. Like I'm paying all this money for you to play games, but no, there is, there's definitely a therapeutic aim to that. And it has to do with building that relationship and that rapport and giving the child control over the session. So that sometimes that's what it looks like. And it can take a long time to build that rapport to the point where the child can be vulnerable. And so keep that in mind. You're, you're building that relationship over time so that the child feels comfortable expressing the things that they really need to express. So one of the things you brought up, I know in a lot of therapies uh, that, that we look at, you know, they set up specific goals that are measurable. Uh, it seems like in counseling, it's not necessarily so measurable. You're more looking at improvement in behavior and so forth like that. So maybe what is the objective to going to counseling since you don't necessarily have such a measurable goal? What, what should a parent be looking as their objective? Yes, yeah, a really good question. And it really depends on the child. You're looking for some measurable changes in those functional problems, I mean, I, I assume we're not willing to fork out the money and the time to do something like counseling unless we really feel like there's a problem. So in most cases, you're, that's what you're looking for. So for instance, you know, they, they won't go to school. Your child is refusing to go to school. So what you're trying to figure out is, is there some measurable change in their willingness to go to school? And it's going to be really gradual over time. Um, and some of it may be, related to communication and incentives and all those things, such a slow process. But I think to your point, Eric, having some very specific ideas of what you want to see, knowing that it's not going to happen overnight. And some of it could be developmentally. If developmental, if you have a, a teenage boy that's just being irritable, that, you know, that's not going to resolve for, for maybe several years. However, what does the behavior look like on a daily basis is that frequency and duration and intensity are some of those things uh, easing a little bit and that they're going back to more of their baseline. And if not, I would say if things don't get better pretty quick, at least in some small way, you got to keep digging. You may need to take your child back to the primary care physician and look again at what else might be going on. Those are great insights. Thanks, Cheryl. So when you're looking at counseling, are there any other types of counseling that are available? We typically think of counseling as talk therapy, but there are so many different interventions and you want to match the intervention to your child. So play therapy and art therapy are really effective for small children. And there's something called sand play or sand tray therapy that can just be really effective and helpful because it doesn't require the talking. So for any child that's nonverbal, that's what we're going to use. And even a child that can't talk is going to be able to express what's going on with them through play. There's group therapy and that, you know, that really applies more to, to maybe parents or teens where they just don't feel alone. And then family therapy, where we all go together and try to work on a specific problem, really helpful. And then the behavior therapies, I know 
those of us in the autism world, we know about behavior therapy. There are several different kinds of behavior therapy that are effective with children, families, and young adults. So really the thing you're looking for is somebody who has experience with what you are dealing with. You want to ask, have you, have you treated children? Have you treated children with ADHD, with autism? Uh, somebody who has that experience is going to be a lot more helpful to you than someone who is just a general practitioner. So how does a family pay for counseling? And what are we looking at also in terms of uh, time commitment? Yeah. So paying for counseling is tricky and it can be so costly. Our experience with what our private insurance paid for, or even the employee assistance program, it's pretty time limited. Those through insurance, they require certain parameters to be met, right? They want they want you to get better in six sessions. And I already said, you know, that's, that's pretty hard. So use your insurance and, and do as much investigating as you can try to try to get an individual who really can address the needs. And then beyond that, uh, there's a lot of nonprofit and you know, religious groups that do provide counseling on a sliding scale. So any, any break in cost is helpful. And let me say a little bit about time too. It can take months to really see significant changes, but that's okay. Because once you, I think the investment, if you can find the right person that you feel is, has that rapport with your child and you, then once you do that initial investment of a few sessions where they really feel connected, then you can spread them out. And I did that many times with my boys. I would, you know, we would take a break for several months and then, oh, something would crop up. And I could, I could say, hey, we're going back to Corey. And Corey by that time was their friend. And so he was a trusted person and they could talk over what they needed in a couple sessions and it didn't take as long. So if you're, if you're kind of lucky enough, blessed enough to find somebody who really can establish that rapport and you trust, then the next sessions won't take as long. So that's great, Cheryl. When and where would you seek immediate help or crisis counseling? Boy, and this, it used to be that we would address this maybe in teenagers and above. And I think that any age children who are exposed to social media are at risk for expressing. So we're looking for any threats of self-harm or any evidence of self-harm. And let me just say that self-harm doesn't necessarily mean a suicide attempt. Sometimes it's just copying behavior. You know, maybe they've seen somebody cut at school or hurt themselves. Uh, it's still cause for enough concern that you seek attention right away. So depending on the severity, if someone is telling you that they want to kill themselves, if they're, if they want to harm themselves, it's pretty serious. And so you want to dig in. A lot of people shy away from the questions. We want to ask the questions. Really, you're thinking about harming yourself. Have you, how long have you been thinking about this? Do you have a plan? What is your plan? And the further down that road you go, the more serious, if, if they're talking about a plan, then you're most likely you're calling 911 or you're taking them to the emergency room now. And that seems really scary, but we want to intervene 
in the most conservative way. We need to keep them alive so that we can get the help that they need. And so um, calling 911, you can call your primary care physician or go in for a visit there if you can get them in. You can go to the ER. There are, in some communities, there are mental health hospitals where you can just go directly to a hospital. There are crisis lines. I know in San Diego County, I think it's 211 is the crisis line. Um, So you can get some help and guidance. But I think the point is really, how do I know if I'm in a crisis? A crisis is self-harm or threat of self-harm. And I will say that my children use that from time to time. And every single time they said it, I schlepped them off to this counselor and they were like, we didn't mean it, mom. And I'm like, and so between me and the counselor, we could say, you know, that there are better ways to say, I don't like you, mom, then I'm going to hurt myself. And so just using it as a learning tool and also self-harm is it's of concern. And so you have to sort out whether this is self-harm toward a suicide in- intent or self-harm for some other reason. And self-harm for another reason is still a really serious mental health concern and something that needs to be dealt with um, pretty aggressively, I would say, in the mental health brain. So what simple tips can you share with parents for helping diffuse meltdowns and agitation in the day-to-day? Simple tips. You're funny. (laughs) (laughs) Simple tips. Well, I think um, all of us have experienced our children's meltdowns and know that it's not easy. I think we try to shortcut things, right? And we already know that it's not going to go well in the direction that it's going. And so we try to head it off and stop it before it starts, which is, you know, valid. At that point where you realize that this meltdown is going to happen, validating their point of view, however that looks, getting down with them or, and well, obviously keeping them safe, but getting down at their level and trying to see things from their perspective is really going to help. So what am I saying? I'm saying that the mental health of us as parents is what is going to help soothe those meltdowns. Because we've already, I'm assuming we've already tried everything else. We've already tried all the other things. We know what they need to eat. We know how much sleep they need. We know how to take their medications. We know that they shouldn't go to the birthday party. We know all that stuff. The meltdowns are coming from somewhere else. And so self-care for the parents where we can be in at least enough of a mental space to say, this is not getting better. I'm going to have to write it out. I'm going to keep him or her safe. And then, so that's number one is just our own mental health to say, okay, this is happening. I'm going to roll with it. And then second is narrating the feelings and behaviors. Oh yeah, you are, you're really disappointed. You're going to pound the floor now. I can understand maybe, you know, and I'm going to bring a pillow and you can pound on the pillow instead of, so we're keeping them safe. And we're also allowing them to do what they need to do to get that expression out. I think that the hardest thing for us as parents was that we had family members who would watch the situation and wanted it shut down immediately. And that's not helpful to anyone. I mean, parent, me as a parent, I was stressed out. My kid 
was stressed out. I mean, all we could do is like flee out the front door and into the car and out of the situation. That's all we could do in that situation. Whereas maybe we can teach our child to express what you need to express in a, in a safe and contained way where you're not causing yourself or property or other people any harm. I love that you hit on self-care for the parents. You know, do you want to speak a little bit more about that actually to that? Because we've certainly found that that is just pivotal taking Mm -hmm. care of yourself as a parent so that, you know, it's just like when you go on an airplane and they tell you to put on your oxygen mask before you put on your child's, because you're not able to help them as effectively if you are struggling. One of the skills that I would encourage everybody to learn is mindfulness. And what mindfulness really is, is, is awareness of what's going on around you and in you. And speaking just personally, and I touched on it, I think my reactions that created more problems in a meltdown had more to do with me and my emotions than my child's emotions. Most of the time it had to do with me trying to shut down the, the behavior because I was uncomfortable for some reason. So that mindfulness practice of just being aware of what you're feeling. I'm anxious today. I'm tired today. And then being able to take steps to take care of your own anxiety or your own sleeplessness, or even just giving yourself, there's an, one aspect of mindfulness is non-judgmental of yourself. So yeah, I'm tired. I didn't get any sleep. And this meltdown is about to melt me down is helpful even in and of itself. Just giving yourself the space to say, I'm, I'm struggling. I don't, I'm not going to do this well today. I'm going to try to keep everybody safe. I'm not doing it well. So Cheryl, one of the things that we like to do is ask um, this question at the end of every podcast. And basically it's just, what is one thing that you'd like to share with our listeners to help encourage them and bring hope for the road ahead? Okay. So I have maybe not one thing, but it all goes together. So fabulous. All right. So second Corinthians one, five says that just as we share in the suffering, like Christ suffered, we're comforted in knowing that others have also suffered. And so that sense that we're not alone in this, you're not the only parent that is dealing with this or has dealt with this. There can be such isolation and exhaustion in parenting special needs kids. And so knowing that there are other people, this is This is something that we can do together and we're stronger when we seek out that help with others and we have no choice. Sometimes our, our kids are just tough and there, there's no way around it. Just knowing that others have been there and survived can help us. So each phase is going to have its challenges. There's always going to be something new, right? And so remembering not to compare yourself to the lives of other people, your neighbors, your friends, the people on social media. And I had a, there's an author, Heather Forbes, who said something in a conference that really helped me. She said, and I don't, there's no research to back this, but she said, when you have a special needs child with all the mental and physical demands, you do not have one child. You have three children, the equivalent of three. So when I add up my two, that's six children. And that feels about right. 
as far as how, how exhausted I felt in going to medical appointments and counseling appointments and school appointments. It's more than one child. So if it comforts you in just knowing that there's a workload here that is unrecognized, people don't understand that. When you're exhausted, it's okay to plug your kid in to a show. It's okay for you to take care of yourself. And it's recommended that you get a counselor, someone, a trusted person who you can talk to when you're feeling at the end of your rope. So self-care and don't walk this road alone. Cheryl, thank you so much for today. We just so appreciate your insight into this topic. So thanks for coming on today. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Resources and contact information for today's podcast will be included in the show notes. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share us with others and be sure to follow us so you won't miss an episode. And we'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a comment or rating and connect with us on social media or on our website at hopeonthehardroad.org.